Heidi mentioned this uh, in the announcement time about this evening, uh, our Q&A time. I want to encourage you, if you have questions about uh, what the elders and I are thinking as far as where the Lord, we believe, is leading us in, in adding a service, uh, please join us for that. And uh, again, it's at 5 o'clock. And, and if that doesn't intrigue you, there will be ice cream afterwards. And so that's always a good thing, isn't it? So I uh, want to say that as we continue talking about and walking our way through this uh, experience through the book of Joshua, that we come to a place now in, in Joshua chapter 20, and we'll get there in just a moment, but we come to this place now where things have settled down, and I'll talk more explicitly about that in, in a few moments, but, but what I want you to consider is the following, and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's this whole, not just a concept, but it's the reality of running. It's the reality of running and having a destination in mind. And this particular individual, and he's going to come up on the screen, this run that, uh, that Dean Carnassus did started on October 12th, 2005. It went all the way until October 15th of 2005. Over the course of those three days, Dean went running. And when I say he went running, I mean he went running. Over the course of those three days, Dean Carnassus ran for 80 hours and 44 minutes straight. He didn't stop to sleep. He didn't stop to eat. He ate as he ran. He covered in those three days 350 miles. He ran from San Francisco to, and and forgive me if I mess this up, to Bodega Bay. And from there he then went to Stanford. But over the course of these three days, he ran for 350 miles straight. Now, over the course of that time, he lost a few toenails. Every 50 miles, he had to change shoes because his feet were swelling so much, and it makes, makes perfect sense. And he burned through over 40,000 calories. 350 miles. And I, when I was reading about this, I'm going, this guy has to look like some type of freak show. But yet, you see this picture, he looks happy. He looks relieved. He, he just looks like a normal individual. He's written some books and, and, and things like that. But, but the amazing thing is this guy loves to run. He simply loves running. He's run various ultra marathons, and, and he even, and this blew my mind, he even ran a marathon that ended at the South Pole. He ran a marathon, and the average temperature during the run was 13 degrees below zero. But he did, this guy loves running. His running has taken him all over the place, yet I would believe this to be true, be a safe statement that this particular individual has never had to run for his life. He's never had to flee somewhere to get to safety. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 20, and we're going to be talking about a run that many people back in Joshua's day experienced. This particular run was a run that that was altogether different than what Dean experienced in that 350-mile run that he did over 80 hours. But it's a run that meant they were either going to be okay or they were going to suffer extreme consequences. So we pick it up in verse 1. 
Then Yahweh said to Joshua, tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge as I instructed you through Moses, so that anyone, anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. When they flee to one of these cities, they are to stand in the entry of the city gate and state their case before the elders of that city. Then the elders are to admit the fugitive into their city and provide a place to live among them. If the avenger of blood comes in pursuit, the elders must not surrender the fugitive because the fugitive killed their neighbor unintentionally and without malice aforethought. They are to stay in that city until they have stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who was serving at that time. Then they may go back to their own home in the town from which they fled. Father, we pray now as we come to this time of looking at your word, we would ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes that we can see that you are our refuge, that you would open our ears so that we can hear this word of rescue that you have for each and every one of us, that you would open our minds that we can understand what it means to have you as our ever-present help in times of need. And that you would open our hearts that we would be a people that reaches out with courage to care for those who wonder if they have any purpose anymore. Lord, you do the work. Lord, you be lifted up and you be glorified. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those of you that have been here for the past number of weeks as we've walked our way through Joshua, you'll notice this, that we just made a very big jump in one week. Last week we were in Joshua 10, now we've made it all the way to Joshua 20. What happened in between there? Well, let me explain to you, I took some, I took some freedom here, and I just want you to know this, from Joshua 12 all the way through 19... It is arguably one of the most detail-oriented land allotment passages in all of Scripture. I don't think, and forgive me if I'm wrong here, I don't think you're really into how the land got divided up. Okay? So that's all there is to it. If you find that interesting, I commit to do this. That we will talk about that, those particular chapters the next time February 29th falls on a Sunday. That's my commitment to you. All right? So, so we come to this chapter. And what has happened since chapter 10 is this, is that Israel has continued following Joshua, who has continued following the Lord. It's amazing what happens when godly leadership gets involved and pays attention to what the Lord's leading them to do. Things seem to go well. They go so well that Israel is now at this place that they have never been, at least in their recent history. Flip back a few pages, go to Joshua chapter 11, and there's a verse there that helps us understand very clearly what they're experiencing for the very first time. Look at verse 23. So Joshua took the entire land just as Yahweh had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. Now listen to this next line. Then the land rested from war. For the first time in Israel's recent history, they are not in battle. 
for the first time in Israel's history, they are able to have peace. Peace all around them. To give you an understanding of, 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 of connecting that to what's going on perhaps in, our, in modern day times, it would, be as, it would be as if Afghanistan experiences peace eventually. And when that peace happens, there will be people that have never known peace for a single day of their lives. People, age, people in their 40s all the way down to newborns in Afghanistan have never known peace. Imagine, and it's impossible for us to imagine, but imagine what that must feel like to know peace, to experience peace for the first time. That's what's going on with Israel. And so, so here's what happens. So we come to this place in chapter 20 after all the land allotment is taken care of. We come to this place in chapter 20 and we read these words. Then Yahweh said to Joshua, tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge as I instructed you through Moses. Let's stop there for just a moment. Wait a second, everything's going fine. Why do we need to have cities of refuge? Well, here's what the Lord knows, and I think all of us now know, and it's this. When humanity gathers together, there will be problems. It's just the way it, it's just the way it happens. Since humanity made a decision a long time ago to go away from God and decide to do their own thing, we have had nothing but problems. It's just the way it is. And because of that, God always has ideas in mind to take care of us. God knows what you and I need before we realize that we need it. And so he talks with Joshua and he says, listen, tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge. And notice this one little phrase here, as I instructed you through Moses. That little phrase, as I instructed you through Moses. Here's what's fascinating about that little phrase. It's another reminder that God remains true to his promises. He said this commitment about cities of refuge to Moses, and now he's telling Joshua, listen, I've already brought this up once, but I want you to know I was ready. God is faithful to his promises. Perhaps you're here this morning, you're wondering, Lord, what's going on in my life? I don't understand what's going on. You said that you would take care of me, but I'm not experiencing that care right now. I'm here to tell you again, based on that little phrase, that God is faithful to fulfilling his promises. Yes, it may be rough. Yes, it might not be peaceful at this time. But yet God is faithful to take care of his promises, to fulfill his promises. And so he comes up, doesn't come up, but he shares with Joshua saying, you need to put these places in, you need to have these cities of refuge, you need to get them established soon. And we find out why in verse 3. So that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. As I was working on this this week, I asked this question. Why are cities of refuge 
so important? Why is there an entire chapter in Joshua designated to this? Here's what it boils down to. It is another example of how we see the distinct difference that God is compared to all other gods. There was no other belief system in Joshua's day that provided cities of refuge for people. If you accidentally killed someone, your life was over. Now, I'm not talking about when you murdered someone and and anything like that. I'm talking about an accidental death happened while you were at work or something like that. It was life for life. There was no alternative. It was the way it was. And yet, into that type of an environment, God says, I don't go that way. I'm going to provide refuge for people. I'm going to provide an opportunity for people to have their say in court. I'm going to provide what I believe to be a just way of dealing with this situation. Remember, Christianity, remember Christ following is a distinctly different way of living because we have a distinctly different God. He is not like any other God. He is completely different. And so we see this happen. So into this chaos that, that seems to be erupting when a person accidentally, kill, accidentally kills someone, we see how it can be, obviously, a big issue. But God says, I'm going to reach into that, I'm going to penetrate into that, and I'm going to provide a different way of doing something. I'm going to provide a place of refuge. And God always provides a place of refuge. And then he gives specifics. We pick it up in verse 4. When they flee to one of these cities, when they flee to one of these cities, they are to stand in the entrance of the city gate and state their case before the elders of that city. Then the elders are to admit the fugitive into their city and provide a place to live among them. They need the courage to provide this place, but they also need the courage to provide purpose for these people. Notice what it says here that they will have a place to live among them. They don't simply show up and do nothing. They become part of the fabric of this particular city. They get involved there. They're going to make a living there. To live among someone means you become a part of their lives. These people are not to be treated as outcasts. They are to come in and serve alongside. And one of the things that struck me was this, was that so often we sit there and we think, well, they're just going to show up and, and that's all there is. But God says you are to provide a place for them to live, not exist, but to live. When we live, it means that we're rubbing up against one another. It means that we're, that we're working alongside one another. And the beauty of this is that it continues to help us understand what it means to be designed in the image of God. So often we think that being designed in the image of God is that, well, we're simply his favorite creation. Well, there's a lot of truth to that. But we don't flesh it out very much. There are a number of elements that come into play in being designed in the image of God. One is that we're creative and that we have responsibility and things like that. But there's also another thing, and I, think it's, I don't think it gets talked about enough. Being designed in the image of God means that we 
have purpose. You right now, each and every one of us in this room, has purpose. It's part of being designed in His image. Let that sink in for a little bit. Because you have purpose, you get to engage with other people. We get to see that, this, that, that our purpose isn't some little thing that, that doesn't make any difference. But so often what ends up happening in life, especially for these people that are fleeing to the city of refuge, they're wondering if their purpose is over. And yet God seems to be saying, not just seems to be saying, God is saying these people still have purpose even though they're in a city of refuge. These people seeking refuge still have purpose. Don't treat them any differently. Don't forget that they're designed in the image of God. There's this thinking that perhaps we make mistakes, and once we make a mistake, that God no longer has purpose for us. Yet, all I can tell you is read your Bible. The Bible is filled with people who made mistakes. Abraham made quite a few mistakes. Yet God continued to fulfill his purpose through Abraham. Want to talk about another individual who made a few mistakes? A guy by the name of Samson. He made more than just one or two. This guy was a wrecking ball. His life was filled with mistakes. And yet God in his sovereignty, God in his genius still was able to bring about freedom for the Israelites through Samson. Here's another one, David. He made more than just a few mistakes. And yet God continued to fulfill his purpose through David. As a matter of fact, we're told that David was a man after God's own heart. The Apostle Paul was, a, was, was on a rampage, taking out Christ follower after Christ follower after Christ follower. He comes to know Jesus Christ, and perhaps Paul could say, uh, you can't use me anymore. As a matter of fact, Paul says, says in, in one of his letters, he says this, he says, I am the worst of all sinners. He could sit there and wallow in self-pity, yet God says, you know what? I still have purpose for you. Hear me clearly on this. No matter what mistake you have made in life, you can sit there and wallow in that or you can sit there and say, Lord, what is my purpose? Because I know you have a purpose for me. Some of you in this room have forgotten that. You are wallowing in self-pity, saying, God, you can't use me anymore. You obviously don't have a purpose for me anymore. I'm here to tell you that is not true. You're designed in the image of God. You have purpose because you're designed in the image of God. Don't let your mistakes win the day. Allow God's grace to invade your life and remind you that you still have purpose. And you have a purpose that is bigger than yourself. There are a lot of different ways that I could go down this particular rabbit hole, but I'm only going to go over a few. And the first is this. Your job is your mission field. Your job isn't simply a place where you can go and put in some hours and get a paycheck. 
you go there, you're involved with people who are longing to see that there is a God who is different than anything else or anyone else they've ever seen, and they're looking at you. Your job is your mission field. Yes, you get a paycheck, but it's your mission field. You are there to be a representative of Jesus Christ. Here's another area. Your parenting is for the benefit of your children. Well, duh, that makes perfect sense. But let me explain this a little bit. Your parenting is not so that you can compare your parenting to other parents and say, look at me, aren't I a great parent? Your parenting is for the benefit of your children. Your responsibility in being a grandparent or your responsibility in being, a, in being a parent or a grandparent for your children or your grandchildren is this. You're, you're creating and you're preparing them to be contributing adults in this world. I know Miriam taught a class on parenting and from what I heard, where's Miriam? I saw just a... Rave reviews. You did a phenomenal job. Okay, so great job. And I don't know if she talked about this or not, so I'll talk about it now. There's an idea, not just an idea, going around right now about parenting, and they're called snowplow parents, which means that they will plow any and every obstacle that their, parent, that their children are about to face so that their children no long, don't have to face any type of obstacle in life. They're called snowplow, snowplow parents. Follow me here. Show of hands. How many of you have not run into any obstacles in life to this point? My point. As a parent, your responsibility is to carry out the will of God with your children. As a grandparent, to carry out the will of God for your grandchildren. And that means equipping them to deal with life as it comes. Here's another thing. Your retirement is for serving. Not sitting back and eating bonbons. Sorry, but my point is this. I encourage you to read from Genesis 1 all the way through Revelation 22. And you will notice the following. The word retirement is not there. We are to serve until the day we draw our last breath. We are to serve until Jesus Christ comes back. We are called to serve. If you're retired and you're looking for a place to serve, I would encourage you to, to go down the street just a little ways to Mission Park Elementary, this school that we're trying to, trying to build a bridge with. And they're looking for people that could, that, could, that could come and listen to children read. It's a great way to get involved. It's a great way of representing Jesus Christ in that school. And then here's a catch-all one. Your purpose, no matter where you are in life, no matter if you're a school person or you're a job person, you're a retired person, you're a single person, you're a married person, whatever, your job, your purpose, no matter where you are in life, is to go and make disciples. We have one message here, which is love God, love people. We have one purpose here, which is as we go, we make disciples. No matter where you are in life, you are 
to carry out that purpose. That purpose is to help people see Jesus Christ. It's to help people understand who He is. So when when we read these words in verse 4 about providing a place to live among them, what's going on here is reminding people that they have purpose. We have purpose, and as we live out this purpose, the kingdom of God expands. Verse 5, if the avenger of blood comes in pursuit, the elders must not surrender the fugitive because the fugitive killed their neighbor unintentionally and without malice. They are to stay in that city until they have stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who was serving at that time. Not only did they need to have the courage to provide a place, they need to also have the courage to provide purpose for them, and they also need to have the courage to protect you need to have courage to protect. Earlier I mentioned how the Lord knows when humanity gathers that there are going to be problems. We know that to be true. And that therefore Joshua needed to create these cities of refuge. God also understands this, the power of those who seek vengeance. Notice the word use here. Avenger of blood. Now, granted, that sounds pretty intimidating, and granted, it is pretty intimidating. What's your title today? I'm the Avenger of Blood. I don't think you're going to win many friends or influence people. Well, you might influence people, but you're not going to win many friends that way. But the Avenger of Blood was this male relative who was closest to the person by blood who who was recently killed. That's what the Avenger of Blood is. And so it's this person, and there are plenty of responsibilities that fall on this particular person's shoulders. And part of, the, part of the responsibility is this, is to make things right. Now back in Joshua's day, losing a member in your family had severe financial implications for your family. You were already struggling from day to day. Now without an, another individual to come alongside and work you have to figure out how you're going to make this right. And so there were instances where if there was murder, there was instances where you went and took care of that person. But God's saying, the avenger's going to come. And you as elders need to protect this individual. And God knows this to be true when it comes to vengeance. And it's this, getting even never leads to making it even. When we seek revenge, it always gets ugly. When I served as a youth pastor for 22 years and we would go to camp, the students understood this, that I was not a fan of practical jokes. Well, the girls in our group decided that I didn't know what I was talking about. And so while we were out doing, uh, doing rec time, some girls snuck into the guy's cabin, took boxers or underwear, from the guys, got them soaking wet, and then put them in a freezer. I found out about it a few moments after after the guys are going, where's my underwear? I'm going, please tell me you pack some. (laughs) And then it slipped out that the girls had invaded our cabin and done this. I sit down with the girls and I said this, you know I don't like practical jokes. And I'm going to tell you this right now. 
you just poked the bear. Because these guys are not happy. I am going to go back to the cabin and explain the situation, and I'm going to strongly encourage the guys to not be idiots. But you're dealing with hormonally raging young men right now, and I don't know if they're going to listen to me. The guys, a few of them, decided to take matters into their own hands. The next day, I had 10 girls crying and weeping. Why would they do such a thing? And I said this, it's because vengeance never makes things even. So often we are wronged in life and we seek revenge and we think that we know what's going to make things even, but all it does is further cause, it causes further damage in the process. Needless to say, for the remaining years of my youth ministry days, practical jokes did not happen for some reason. But we need someone. We need someone who's going to protect us. We need protection from the Avengers out there in our lives. And we're not talking about the Marvel comics. I'm talking about three Avengers that all of us struggle with that seek to cause us harm. The first is this. We need protection from ourselves. We need protection from ourselves. Why do we need protection from ourselves? It's because we don't forgive ourselves very well. We carry stuff with us for so, so long and we fail to believe that we can be forgiven for what we've done. Even though Jesus Christ makes it abundantly clear you're forgiven, we simply say, uh, I'm, I'm too bad, you can't forgive me. And then we go down these paths that bring harm to ourselves. We bring more harm into our lives on our own than anybody else does. We need protection from ourselves. We need protection from this world. Unless you've been living under a rock for a really long time, you know this, the world's ways do not mesh well with what God calls us to do and how God calls us to live. Right now, our world is, is coming off the rails. Hysteria, pandemonium, it, it's, it's nuts. And Paul says this, that we are to be in the world but not of the world. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden we get into these little bubbles and we say we don't want to have anything to do with it. We are required, and, and from the way I read Scripture, the way I interpret Scripture, we are required and, and, and expected to interact with people in such a way that they can see a difference in, in, in who Jesus Christ in our is in our lives. And lastly, we need protection from the devil. This almost goes without saying. Jesus Christ gives the greatest definition of who, uh, greatest description of who the devil is in John chapter 10. And he says these words, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I can't think of a better job description for Satan than that. We need protection from him. God understands what's going on in life. God understands that we need protection. 
And so he says for these people who are running for their lives, get to a city of refuge. You elders, you need to listen to this case. You need to judge accordingly. And if this person is found innocent, you are to continually provide protection from them, for them. But there's an interesting line at the, in the middle of verse 6 that caught me. They are to stay in that city until they have stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who was serving at that time. At that time, they may then go back home to their own home in the town from which they fled. I found that line interesting. They stay in that city of refuge. Once that high priest dies, they can return home. But I know human nature. And I know that there could be problems. For them there. I found it interesting that there is a time frame here. And ideally, what, what God is driving at here is, is that this person can experience, can get back home and be with their community. We don't know how long it was that they lived in that city of refuge. It could have been a very, very long time. Things change over the course of time. but you don't go back to the city until the high priest dies. What if I were to tell you that there's a high priest who will never die? What if I were to tell you that each and every one of us needs a refuge because each and every one of us has done some type of harm to others? What if I were to tell you that there is a high priest who constantly provides what we need. As a matter of fact, this high priest knows exactly, precisely what you need before you realize that you need it. What if I were to tell you that there is a high priest who constantly provides purpose in your life? A purpose that is more than just a paycheck and the ability to buy more and more stuff. A purpose that seeks to serve rather than being served. A purpose that is bigger than yourself. What if I were to tell you that there's a high priest who constantly provides protection? A protection that is ever-present no matter your situation. A protection that remains actively involved in protecting you from yourself, this world, and the devil. A protection that never wearies and never fails. What if I were to tell you that this particular priest, this particular high priest, has a name and he provides a refuge, a constant help, an ever-present help in times of need? What if I were to tell you that this high priest has a name and his name is Jesus Christ? What if I were to tell you that when you seek refuge in Jesus Christ, that he provides that refuge in, in, in himself, that his arms are wide open to provide a refuge unlike anything else you've ever seen in, or experienced in your life? There's a story in Luke chapter 15. It's known as the story of the prodigal son. I shared with you the fact that I believe that that's a... That, title of that particular passage is is wrong it's it's a story of the loving father 
And as the prodigal who made plenty of mistakes along the way, who brought great harm to others along the way, as he's fleeing to go back into the refuge of his home, and he's running down that street, what does he see? He sees the Father running to him. As we seek out this refuge, as we seek out help, as we seek out some way to make it through what's going on in our lives, what we run into is this, is that there is the one high priest who is already running to us and he's wanting us to enjoy the refuge that only he can give. All of us need that type of a refuge. All of us need one who's never going to stop caring. Heidi, I want to invite you up and get us ready. And Sherry and Tony as well. But I want to invite you to do something this morning. I want to invite you, if you haven't already, to take refuge in this great high priest who never dies. To take refuge in this one who was there no matter what. He knows your needs. He knows, you, he knows your purpose. He knows how to protect you unlike anyone else. I invite you to experience that refuge today. Dean Carnassus spent over 80 hours running nonstop to get to his destination. This morning I invite you to experience the loving the amazing love of a God who runs to you, providing you all that you need because He is that refuge and ever-present help in times of trouble. Father, as we reflect on these words, it's our prayer, it's my prayer, that You would be our refuge in Jesus Christ. He's the one that we desperately need. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will move in our lives in such a way that we would experience a refuge like no other. A refuge that gives us provision. A refuge that gives us protection. A refuge that gives us purpose. So Lord, open our eyes. And for those of us in this room that need to say yes to that refuge, may we say yes. And we thank you that you provide that refuge each and every day. As we sing these songs, Lord, may we sing knowing that you are our refuge and ever-present help in times of need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand.